Eric Metaxas, in his book Amazing Grace, tells the story of William Wilberforce. It's a good book and it's worth reading about Wilberforce's life. In his mid-twenties, everything changed for Wilberforce in which he, he came to Jesus in faith and his life was, uh, was really turned around. His first instinct was to leave the world of politics, but upon discernment he realized that God was calling him to stay in Parliament and his task was to confront the evils of slavery within the British, British Empire. In 1788, Wilberforce put forward the first motion within Parliament to abolish slavery. And he was bubbling uh, as a young man with optimism, certain of uh, its success. Uh, but the bill was solidly defeated. A couple years later, in 1791, he put forward the bill again and it was overturned, it was defeated. Why? Well, after that second defeat, it was actually John Wesley who wrote a letter to, uh, to Wilberforce when he was 87 years old, and it is perhaps the last letter that Wesley died just a few days after sending it. This is a portion of it. He said, Dear Sir, unless the divine power has raised you up to be as Athanasius contramundum, I see not how you can go through your glorious enterprise in opposing that villainy which is the scandal of religion, of England, and of human nature. Unless God has raised you up for this very thing, you will be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. But if God be for you, who can be against you? That he who has guided you from youth up may continue to strengthen you in this in all things is the prayer of, dear sir, your affectionate servant, John Wesley. You see, for Wesley, the big problem that Wilberforce was up against was caused by, in his words, men and devils. And I'd like to suggest to you uh, that the Ephesian church is facing a very similar big problem with similar causes. And if you look at verse 21 of, of chapter 1, he says that Christ is exalted far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. This, this language that Paul uses is reference to demonic evil forces, devils, that interface with human realities and create all kinds of havoc within society. And while Christ conquered Satan and the devils, they nevertheless, in this age, remain present and influential. In chapter 2, verse 3, Paul says he refers to Satan as the prince, there's that language of authority again, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work. He then mentions these dark forces in chapter 3, verse 10, and again in chapter 4, verse 8. And then he, quite famously in chapter 6, verse 12, he culminates the whole letter in saying that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against, and then he lays out the same terminology, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And the Christians at Ephesus, they knew exactly what Paul was talking about as they were confronted by these evil spiritual forces. In fact, in the first century, the city of Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey, 
was the very center of worship of the goddess Artemis. The temple of Artemis was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, and it was four times the size of the Parthenon in, in, uh, in Athens. Artemis, she was the city's mother, and from her came the blessings of, of, uh, of marriage and of children and of community. And she was, in fact, hugely popular uh, throughout the Roman Empire. And that led, her popularity led to the city of Ephesus and the citizens of Ephesus to an inherit enormous power and financial wealth. And we get a glimpse of what was going on uh, if you read, you can read later today in Acts chapter 19, in which the Ephesians for two hours were, were gathered, several thousands of them in an outside dome, or dome, in which they were shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, over and over again. Why were they doing this? They were very angry. They were angry uh, because of the preaching of the gospel. And Demetrius, the silversmith, had stirred up the crowd and he had argued that this gospel preaching about Jesus was a direct threat to Artemis and also to the economic system of the whole city. And the Apostle Paul was, in fact, teaching that Jesus was not only above Artemis, but that Artemis was merely an idol, a statue made by human hands. And she has no power to bless this community or our families or marriage or children. And he goes on to argue in other places in the New Testament that behind these statues are in fact evil demonic forces that use the front of, of, of idols in order, which are very real, not the idols, but the evil forces behind them in order to blind people so that they do not worship the true God. Artemis worship confronted the church with big problems, big problems that, was, that you can actually, uh, Paul alludes to throughout the, the letter to the Ephesians. Surely it, it was a spiritual problem as it, these principalities and powers blinded the people from true relationship with God. It created social problems in which because there was this paganism of worship of many gods that included Artemis, that it kept a division between Jew and Gentile, which, which Paul argues for is exactly what Jesus does in chapters 2 and, and, and 3. He brings Jew and Gentile together. Her worship led to all kinds of domestic issues, breeding power dynamics within the family, which is probably part of the reason Paul brings up marriage and children in the end of chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6. And of course it led to all kinds of economic issues in which the, the entire economic system of Ephesus was founded upon the, the false worship of Artemis and people were spending all kinds of money on, uh, on her worship. Alluded to throughout the letter as Paul uses the language of inheritance and of wealth and you read Acts 19, it's very clear that Ephesus is hugely rich because of, uh, of her worship. And of course, the church itself was threatened by this uh, false worship because the, there was persecution of the church, which we even read in, in, in Acts 19. What is the church to do when it faces big problems, whether the big problems are in the church and outside of it. Well, one temptation for us as Christians is to address the big problems by trusting in human strength. 
You read Psalm 33, just briefly. The king is not saved by his great army. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. So rather than relying on, on human strength when we face big problems as the church, Paul is showing something actually quite different here in Ephesians chapter 1. He's, he's showing that we are to pray. We need, when we face these big problems, we need prayer infused with hope. Prayer is talking with God. It's listening to him. And through prayer, we can engage these big problems. And prayer is, in fact, a major theme in the letter to the Ephesians. Uh, the, the letter starts with this amazing prayer that we're going to talk about a little bit more in just a moment in chapter 1. And then in the very middle of the letter, in chapter 3, there's this amazing prayer for Paul does for the Ephesians in, in that they would be in, uh, understanding God's love. And then the letter ends in chapter 6 with a call to the Ephesians to pray in light of these cosmic powers that are causing all kinds of havoc within the church and outside. In this prayer, this prayer of chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, when you first read it, it's, it's almost confusing. What is he saying? It's just word upon word. It's compact and it's overflowing with, with eloquence and it's even hard to really gather. What, is, what on earth is Paul praying? Well, the lesson is that when the church faces big problems, we need to pray. Church, you need to pray. And you need to pray with an infusion of hope. And he shows us how to pray in, in, this, in these verses. It's a prayer for illumination. It's a prayer that we would know our inheritance. And it's a prayer for immeasurable power. So let's walk through the, those three things. First, when the church faces big problems, the church needs to pray for illumination. Look at verse 16. He says, Remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Paul is asking God to give the church knowledge, an increasing depth of knowledge of Christ. And this knowledge is not merely intellectual knowledge. It's the Jewish sense of to know, which is the deep relationship. It's an intimate kind of knowing of another. And it's not a prayer, Paul's prayer is not a prayer of conversion for the church. The church has already recognized Christ as Lord and Savior. That's happened. This prayer is for a growing openness within the church to understand who God is, who Christ is in all of his glory, so that we understand who we are as the church. Then in verse 18, he prays that the church would have the eyes of your heart enlightened. He's praying that the, that the core part of the church as a single entity would, would experience and see with their eyes, the eyes of their heart, the luminescence, the, the, the radiance of the glory of the resurrected Lord. That word for enlightened is the word photizo. You hear the word photon. Or light. He's asking that the church, not individuals, but us combined as a single entity, 
that we would see the Lord afresh, anew, with more depth within our inner being. It's in our collective heart. Israel experienced that illumination. They saw that light. The prophets, many of the prophets experienced it. The, the apostles on the Mount Transfig Transfiguration, they experienced and saw a glimpse of the light. The disciples in Acts chapter 1, when Christ was ascended in the cloud, the, the heavens opened up and they surely saw the throne room of heaven as Christ was, was seated, at, seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And even so, church, we need to pray in this very same way for illumination. For Park Street Church's heart with many eyes, but one heart. For, for we to see the glory. For our hearts to open up and to see that radiance of the beauty and the magnificence of Christ. And he's praying this because when you face big problems, you need to know the glorious sovereignty of Christ. We need to see it in our, the hearts, in our hearts and in our depths. And when we see it, what happens? The big problems don't seem quite so insurmountable anymore. When we see the perfection and the ex excellence of the glory, we now have some sense of what the problem is because having known the glory, we can now look at our current situation and we can begin to diagnose what's wrong and how to go forward. And of course, that's exactly what the cosmic powers, it's one of their schemes against the church. They shroud problems with, with disinformation and, and confusion. We, we see that active in Acts 19. The city is nearly rioting, and they don't even know why. But they've been stirred up, and they're angry. They don't really understand spiritually what's going on. The powers appear as angels of light. They offer us earthly wisdom, earthly wisdom, which is very powerful. And they bring lies that are incredibly deceptive. Our only defense, brothers and sisters, is Christ. It's the scriptures. And it's this prayer of illumination of our spirits, of our heart together, that we would be able to see the problem and the cosmic powers that lie behind. And this will give us the path forward. So not only does he uh, call us in the light of these big problems to pray for illumination, the church, secondly, is to pray for, to, to pray to know our inheritance. And you can see this in verse 18. He prays that you may know, verse 18, what are the riches, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Paul's prayer uh, is describing this, this future hope as an inheritance. And every time that Paul uses uh, the word inheritance, it's always referring to that future glory, the coming of Christ in his kingdom. That's the inheritance that has been promised to each one of us, an inheritance that Paul uh, refers to in chapter uh, Galatians chapter 3, that we don't inherit through the works of the law, but it's received, an inheritance received only by faith, placed in Christ, who gives us as a free gift this future inheritance. Why is he praying this for the Ephesians? Well, I, I think there are probably several reasons. One is that when the church is experiencing these big problems, whatever they are, 
that seem insurmountable, we get afraid. We get afraid. And so by seeing the inheritance, the fear begins to dissipate. Well, a few weeks ago, I was in the emergency room with my father, who um, had, uh, had COVID. He's better now, thank God. Uh, but when we, he was having trouble breathing, and so we spent several hours at the Brigham Women's Hospital. And I was worried. I was very concerned as we were there. And he noticed that I was feeling that way. And he said, Michael, why are you afraid? I'm not afraid. I know where I'm going if I die. I know my inheritance. And in a similar way, when we face these troubling moments and the big problems around us, we need to know our inheritance and that there is no problem that is going to take away all of the glory that Christ has promised to us. Not only does knowing our inheritance take away the fear, but it also inspires us to pray with greater expectation. You see, when you, when you see the future inheritance, the perfect justice, the total love, the, the, the healing of all wounds, when you have a glimpse of it, when our hearts glimpse what is coming, then we begin to pray into the problems now. I know the inheritance that's coming. Well, Lord, perhaps some of that inheritance that in the future, can we take a little slice of it and apply it to some of the problems that we have right now? Kind of like a, imagine a very wealthy family with children walking down the streets of Boston and they see this problem and that problem. And perhaps the children, knowing the great wealth of their parents, knowing the inheritance that they themselves have, they go to their parents and say, can we have maybe a little bit of what's coming so that we can solve this particular problem? You see, when we have a sense of our inheritance, we have hope. And we, be we begin to realize that we have been given so much beauty and majesty that we can pull from and draw from and we can begin to apply uh, into the voids and the troubles of our own time. But he also, I, I think, calls the church and prays for the church to know its inheritance because he knows that if we understand this, it will bind us together. See, when the, big, uh, when the church faces the big problems, it's one of the schemes of the devil to divide us and conquer us. Big problems often lead Christians to turn on one another, to be mean, say mean things, to distrust, to accuse, to use power plays, to walk away unreconciled. And Paul is praying that the church know it has an inheritance. And it's not inheritances. It's a single inheritance that has been given to all of us. And whatever the future kingdom is going to be like, it's not going to be us in all these individual mansions with tall fences. No. We've inherited a single thing that we're all going to receive and we're all in Christ are going to live together for all eternity. So when we know and we pray into our inheritance, we're praying against our own divisions. And it's by praying together that we begin to realize this. I certainly have seen this in my own marriage with Tracy. Sometimes when we have uh, an argument over a big problem that, that we are facing, uh, we know, we've come to realize, we've got to come together as soon as possible 
and we need to pray together over this thing that we're disagreeing over or having an argument over. It's, it's critical that we pray, and we pray as soon as possible. And not perfunctory sorts of prayers, but real prayers that are vulnerable and from the heart. I know when I'm upset, I don't want to pray. Uh, I, I'll sometimes resist praying, and she might say, come on, Michael, let's pray, and I'll, and, and I'll, be that, I'll have that heart of resistance within me. And whatever, however we're disagreeing and whoever is right, one thing is clear. When I'm unwilling to come together with her and, and pray, it reveals that I'm trusting, you see, I'm trusting in seeing this problem and putting forth a solution in my own strength. I don't want to go to the Lord. But you see, a marriage or a family or a church that prays together, we absolutely will stay together. It's prayer that will unite us as we see our inheritance through prayer. Well, finally, uh, when there's a big problem, the church is to pray into immeasurable power. You can see this in verse 19. He, he prays that we would know, verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Measurable power. Paul is praying that the church would know the power that has already been given to you, Park Street Church. The power given to the church, this power that resides within our collective heart, is the very power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. It's the very power that put him in his ascension in all authority above heaven and earth. Verse 21, Christ is far above all the cosmic powers. He's above all names. In verse 23, Christ fills the church with all of his fullness. And so the very fullness of the power of Jesus Christ, the church as his body, has received this very same power that resides now in us. Do you believe that? Do you know that? Well, if you don't, then I'd encourage you to pray into this so that you would know it more fully. That power that's been given to us is not exercised. It's not exercised in the world through human strength. It's in prayer. Truly I say to you, Jesus said, even if you say to this mountain, that's a big problem, be taken up and to thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. The Apostle James says the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Now, with immeasurable power given to the church also comes significant great temptation. And it requires us wisdom. The church needs to have wisdom to know how to channel this power that has been given us. One of the temptations has been what we might call the temptation of power towards domination. The church uses its power to gain control, uh, even over government. And that was the error uh, of Constantine that led to Christendom. That undermines gospel witness. It creates nominal Christianity, and it, it builds up secular resentment. It's not the right way to use the power given. Another temptation of power for the church is abdication. That's when the church says, the world's going to pot, 
Let's use our power and only focus on preaching the gospel and saving souls. That's where, that's where we need to focus all of, our, all of our power and energy. That was the error of fundamentalism. It ends up abandoning the church's prophetic role to name sin, as well as to point to the common good. But then there's its opposite. It's, it's the, the temptation of diminishment. This is when the gospel is cheapened into primarily social reform. This is the error in, in, in this most uh, current uh, way is called liberation theology, which is focused on the, the freeing of the oppressed. All the liberation theologies, whether it's Latin American liberation theology, black liberation theology, uh, feminist liberation theology, and there's a long list of uh, all these uh, new uh, liberation theologies, they all have certain things in common. They de-emphasize, inevitably, they end up de-emphasizing personal relationship with God and Jesus Christ, which as far as I know, it's the very heartbeat of the gospel and of the New Testament. But they also methodologically are flawed because they end up, all of them end up elevating human experience above scripture, which will lead to all kinds of errors. And while liberation is clearly important, it is a, it's fundamentally, it's flawed to advance a material answer to what are fundamentally spiritual problems with material manifestations. So if these are the temptations, what is the way forward in channeling the power that's given to us through Christ's spirit? Well, I suggest to you a better way to channel the power was articulated by the Dutch theologian and prime minister Abraham Kuyper in what he called sphere sovereignty. And I can't go into all the details, but I can kind of give you a, a quick gloss of, of some of what he argued. He, uh, he argued that there, we, we need to have a clear differentiation between the institutional church and the organic church. Now, the institutional church is focused on things like worship, evangelism, discipleship, the building of community and community nurture. The central focus of the institutional church is growing a people within a living relationship with Jesus Christ. The gospel remains center. The church may do local outreach, like our home ministry to the Boston Common, where we are addressing local material needs, but it's, it's always done in human relationships, and it's always done with the hope of being able to share the good news of Jesus Christ. That's the institutional church and what it's supposed to be centered and focused on. But then Kuiper argues there's the organic, what he calls the organic church. The organic church is focused on the, what's typically called the creation mandate, to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. It involves Christians working together to engage society's big problems that are ultimately spiritual problems. The organic church may produce organizations with explicit Christian missions, such as Christian schools for the city, or, or, or a center that, that helps parents facing unplanned pregnancy, or, or, or organizations that are focused on justice for the unborn, or calling for more an, a more equitable society, or addressing concerns around the environment, or the arts, or there's a long list of how Christians can organize themselves focused on the big questions and big problems that we're, all, that we're all aware of and that we're all facing. The organic church 
focuses on the issues especially that are plaguing society. And while they may draw on the Christian worldview, sometimes the organic church will make explicit mention of Jesus Christ, and other times it will work for causes without explicitly mentioning Jesus Christ. But both are important for the church in its organic form uh, to, uh, to perform and to do. Tim Keller in his book, Generous Justice, and his focus on specifically around justice, he mentions Kuiper. He says, and I quote, churches that against Kuiper's advice try to take on all the levels of doing justice often find that the work of community renewal and social justice overwhelms the work of preaching and teaching and, and nurturing the congregation. So by channeling the power that has been given to the church in these two spheres, kept in very close partnership, but organizationally remaining separate, the institutional church is called and focuses on equipping the saints to do the work of the ministry. That's Ephesians 4. The organic church exercises its prophetic and its vocational and its philanthropic energies in ministry within the world. And the two work together in engaging the big problems that are around us. But of course, even if we get all the organizational spheres just right, they will all be done in human power unless we're all praying into the issues that are facing us. We need to pray for illumination that the spirit of wisdom would, would show us the way forward and how to engage a problem and being able to name it clearly and what to do in right response. We need to pray to know our inheritance so that we're not afraid and we don't divide. And we need to pray for this immeasurable power to tear down strongholds to name the cosmic powers and to bind them. In the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians, taking every thought captive in obedience to Christ. Well, Wilberforce, he naively thought that slavery in the British, British Empire could be quickly overturned, and he was very wrong. But his efforts endured as he worked and persisted in Parliament. His third effort in 1792, defeated. In 1793, bill put forward, defeated. 1797, 1798, 1799, 1804, 1805. Each time, the call for abolition was defeated within Parliament. Wilberforce had been, he'd been growing as a Christian and had very much been praying in his own private life. But then during these years of defeat, there was also something else that happened. There was a rising movement among God's people to pray together for abolition. And also during this, this time, the, the, the Clapham Circle was formed. This was included Wilberforce and several others who were living together in a village right outside of London. And it was their efforts, their focused efforts, and their focused prayers in which they were moving against abolition. That's an example of the organic church operating in action. And in fact, the, the ripple effect of that circle 
in what they were doing uh, could be felt all the way to this very church in which Boston's own William Lloyd Garrison, he had visited the circle early on in his career and he was prayed over by that very circle. And the prayers there have had a major effect in England and all across the world. It was finally in 1807, 18 years after the first motion that Wilberforce put forward, that the slave trade had finally been abolished. But the evil of slavery endured. It was then on the very night that Wilberforce died. It was July, 1833. 44 years after that first call for abolition, in which slavery was finally and completely abolished across the British Empire. One of uh, Wilberforce's contemporaries, one of the signers and leaders of the bill, he wrote this about Wilberforce. On the very night on which we were successfully engaged in the House of Commons in passing the clause of the act of emancipation, the spirit of our friend left the world. The day which was the termination of Wilberforce's labors was the termination of his life. Human strength did not end slavery. It was the power of Christ confronting the cosmic forces flowing through his church that was praying with an infusion of great hope. And so hear Wilberforce's words as he reflects on the importance of all of this. He said, all may be done through prayer, almighty prayer, for that it is almighty is only through the gracious ordination of God's love and truth. Oh then, pray, pray. Park Street Church, he didn't say that, pray. And even so, Lord, please open up our hearts to catch the glory. Oh, Lord, we need, our church needs to see the glory. Would you not do this, O oh Lord, that we might have a deepening knowledge of the glory of Jesus Christ? Do this, Lord, for your sake, for our joy, that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.